Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Next up is my conversation with poet, writer, photographer, filmmaker, and musician Dow Strom about her latest bilingual poetry collection of image text from the Hanoi-based Ajar Press entitled, You Will Always Be Someone from Somewhere Else. If you are a subscriber to the Bonus Archive, in addition to my conversation with Dow Strom, I will be uploading a discussion of her music and a live performance of one of her songs, and also a conversation with Li Thuy Nguyen, her translator, about the experience of creating the Vietnamese portion of the book. This is all up at the Patreon page, where you can also discover other possible gifts for supporting the show as well. You can find all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, writer, musician, filmmaker, and photographer Dow Strom, a recipient of an NEA Fellowship in Literature, a Creative Capital Award, the Nelson Algren Award, and the James Mishner Paul Engel Fellowship, among others. Strom is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. She's the author of the novel Grassroof Tin Roof the story collection The Gentle Order of Girls and Boys, and the hybrid form experimental memoir We Were Meant to Be a Gentle People and its accompanying album East-West. Poet Bao Fi calls We Were Meant to Be a Gentle People an astounding work of fracture and reconciliation. Filled with provocative images, sharp juxtapositions, and eloquent prose, this poetic memoir challenges our assumptions about aesthetic form and preconceived, racialized, gendered notions of Vietnamese refugees in America. So many of Strom's lines and lyrics and pictures are already blazing through my head like lost stars searching for a sky. In addition to being a writer and artist, Dow Strom has become one of the most important and visionary figures in the Portland literary community. She's the co-founder of Decanon, a visibility project, part reading series, part library, part creator of community space, and part web resource. Decanon is a forum for and a showcase of writers and artists of color in Portland, Oregon. 
Strom is also the co-founder of She Who Has No Masters, a collective of women writers and artists of the Vietnamese diaspora formed around the desire to redefine notions of the Vietnamese feminine as touched by war, history, heritage, mythology, displacement, exodus, violence, migration, and personal experience. She Who Has No Masters has performed collaboratively and written and published trilingual polyvocal collaborative poems. As of 2018, Daustrom also took over the editorship of Diacritics, the blog of the Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network founded by the writer Viet Thanh Nguyen. Daustrom is here today to talk about her latest book, a bilingual poetry collection of image text called You Will Always Be Someone From Somewhere Else, out from the Hanoi-based Ajar Press, and translated into Vietnamese by Li Thuy Nguyen. Poet and writer Vicky Nao says, As you enter the pages of You Will Always Be Someone From Somewhere Else, you will discover, as I have discovered, that the slow, seductive music of her polychromatic creativity and her diverse artistic longing are arranged with the seas in mind. Sea of unity, sea of separation, sea of disruption, sea of departure, sea of not here, not here, sea of space and more space, sea of white pages and sea of cannot, sea of silence, sea of insulation, sea of insinuation, sea of nonfiction, sea of history, sea of loneliness, and sea of solitude. You will notice the dexterity of her art, how she is willing to use everything, poetry, art, memories, travelogue, photography, image art, piano, bells, harmonies, acoustic and electric cities of words, to create a language that is geographically symmetrical to her heart and tongue, and where the mind can memorize but cannot pinpoint or pigeonhole. Her beautiful work from a jar moves like a decapod, organic, and it flows. Or, after you depart from the cinema of her sea, you may ask what or who she is, and why is she able to dismantle my soul so easily. With a few gestures of her aching voice, aching image, aching language, aching structure of irrepressible beauty, and the breathtaking landscape of distilled despair. And how is she able to make desolation so compellingly hospitable? What is her secret? Welcome to Between the Covers, Daustrom. Thank you. <laughs> Quite an introduction <laughs> from Vicky now. Yeah, I, that's testament to Vicky now's wonderful facility with language. <laughs> I'm more than flattered. So, so at the beginning of You Will Always Be somewhere, Someone from Somewhere Else, we encounter a Chinese hexagram. Uh, from the I Ching, a, a hexagram that recurs throughout this book and also your memoir, your previous book. And what's interesting about the way it occurs here, because I feel like it, it occurs in, with different functions at different times, mm -hmm. is that we have these six lines, three broken and three unbroken, but the, the lines are pieces of a photograph and that yeah. those pieces of a photograph are pieces of a photograph of you. <laughs> and so in one sense, we could, we can look at um, these broken and unbroken lines as fragments that make a whole. They make this hexagram, and they also sort of suggest a wholeness to you. Um, but on the other hand, we have the breaks in the lines, um, the white space that that don't allow us to see your face. So yeah. we don't 
we have this sort of double sensation, or I did, of something either being irretrievable or something having been erased that was once there. And so I was hoping we could start with your um, attraction to this hexagram, The Wanderer, and then also maybe just um, about fragments in relationship to wholeness, and uh, something that I feel like you're you're circling in a lot of this uh, book and the, and the previous one. You know, I play around with the I Ching just, you know, as a, as a tool and also just for fun. And, um, and that one attracted me because of it being about the etiquette of the traveler, which is essentially like the, it counsels, um, you know, the person to be mindful of their surroundings, also to be humble. It's about like, being humble and always being aware that you don't know um, the customs of the place that you're in and that success comes through this like smallness of being, um, I guess I think of it as like traveling lightly in the world. And uh, I think I just like that concept as like, you know, something to pay attention to or just, you know, to, to keep in mind. Um, so for whatever reason, I can't even remember when I started playing with that shape in a particular like um, way, I don't remember why I, t- I started doing that. So, um, but in I I've, I used it in the memoir, and um, I arranged a text within that that shape, um, which just played with the shape of the text on the page, and and then that naturally I guess evolved into splitting up the, the photos. Um, so fragmentation is, I, I don't, again, it's like it's hard for me to, to, to remember exactly why, but I guess it comes from being on the computer and cropping things and like resizing things and then, you know, zooming in on something and thinking this is interesting, um, just, you know, as this, this small piece of something. So that might be part of where that started. Um, but also there's this feeling, like, so one of the things it says in the I Ching is strange lands and, and, and separation yeah. are the wanderer's lot. And it feels yeah. like you're collecting and assembling fragments of yourself, like this photograph in, in both of these last two yeah. projects. Um, I mean, I guess that that's kind of like something that I identify with um, just inside myself, this, this concept of being um, fragmented and of many places and many, many confluences. Um, and, uh, photographs play such a big part in like, I guess, you know, an American Vietnamese person's understanding of Vietnam or, or perception of Vietnam. And then probably in like American non-Vietnamese Americans also, um, you know, so much of like, I, I grew up Vietnamese and then this background of the Vietnam War, like my entry into it was really through documentary photographs or just these images um, that are famous and iconic about the Vietnam War. Um, so I guess part of me has like come to this understanding or belief that like, you know, it's sort of necessary as a Vietnamese like artist to kind of contend with those images. Um, and... Um, yeah, there's a lot of things I could say, but I guess fragmenting is one way of like taking apart the images, um, and, uh, disempowering them or, or just messing with them. And, and then, 
Um, and then the self. Um, I don't know. There's there's probably more I could say about like evasiveness, but there is something about there's there's an evasive quality that was like throughout this like working on this memoir and just everything that I have tried to do in writing about Vietnam or writing about the past has had this quality of like wrestling with with very evasive forces or something. Um, and uh, yeah, even just getting the date for this interview, like <laughs> pinpointed for, for instance, like just, there's always, there's a lot of like, you know, there's, there's, there's something about that, that, that definitely went into like the work that I've been doing. Um, um, which is maybe why it's become multifaceted also, but yeah. Well, it's interesting when you say fragmenting something in order to take the power away, because, um, there's a way in which with this sort of work, I think that you can have contradictory interpretations at the same time. Like, like mm-hmm. what I was suggesting, the possibility that you're trying to assemble a whole, but you don't have all the pieces. Yeah. So there are these gaps, which can exist at the same time as you've broke, you've intentionally broken the whole uh-huh. and left the gaps yeah. there as a form of taking power. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe there's a power in like, I don't know, not being whole or being like whole despite um, I feel like in the case of like fragments, like there's both, there's like, there's themes of separation that are like a big part of my life and a big part of being Vietnamese. And I've spent a lot of years like lamenting it and like, you know, just feeling a lot of trauma and pain and just wrestling with it. And then there's also like this attempt to do something that has like multifaceted, um, aspects that's like maybe a form of like trying to bring the pieces back together or trying to, to, to synergize something or just, you know, um, or accepting the fact that there's like multiplicity, um, especially in regards to like uh, Vietnam's history and the whole, if you were just talking about like what happened around the Vietnam War era and there being, you know, just all these multiple sides and stories to it that especially in our rhetoric have been really polarized um, and also erasing, you know, like the South Vietnamese perspective. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, there's also like just there's more <laughs> to being Vietnamese than just like the Vietnam War. And and that's something else that is part of the identity, I guess. Um, yeah. And I, and I feel like so the photographs, not just the, the hexagram at the beginning, but you you create this sort of ability, I think, for the reader to have multiple interpretations and multiplicity because the, with the photographs that you, often the figures are, are cut off in half or uh, part of the, um, something's left out of the frame or maybe part of the picture is obscured. But you also do this with the text. The text feels very unstable. And even the title where it, it, it's, you will always be someone from somewhere else, but the word else is is a smaller font. It's in lowercase and it's yeah. italicized. So you could almost at first glance think it says you will always be someone from somewhere, which feels like <laughs> totally different um, than that. Yeah. But I, I, I was hoping we could start since it, since your yeah. personal biography plays such a big role in, in the sure. poetry collection and in the memoir. Um, if we could talk about the gaps and erasures in your own biography, both yeah. the, the, irretrievable things because of the things that you have no memory of. Uh And then the things that, um, 
some of the things that were actively erased or, yeah. or withheld. So could we could sure. we unpack some of that like for some people? Some of the stuff that's in the memoir, like yeah, um, yeah. Well, I was born in Vietnam, um, and my mother was um, pretty much at the time, like you know, by the time we left, she was a single mother with two young children, and she decided to leave. Um, and we left in '75, and we landed in the in the states in Camp Pendleton in San Diego. And um, and then we were, you know, moved to a um, another refugee camp, which was called Hope Village out in the Sacramento area, which is kind of um, where my mother, she wrote an article for the Sacramento Bee, like with some help from local reporters. And she had been a writer in Vietnam and kind of told her story about being a refugee and a war widow. And and then um, she received some letters in response to that, and one of the letters was from my stepfather, a Danish-American man who, you know, was moved by the story and just offered to help and, you know, was, like, wanted to meet her. I mean, they ended up basically meeting, and they went on a date, and they got married literally, like, two weeks later. Um, and and then so our family, our American family, <laughs> was born from that seed very quickly, and then we were... Um, you know, we moved in Sacramento. So all the time that I was growing up, I was told that my real father had died in the war. And that was kind of the story that, that I grew up with. Um, and then uh, when I was 13 or 14, I remember, like, you know, my talking to my mother, we were driving in the car, and she basically told me, you know, I have something to tell you. Uh, your father's actually alive. And... Um, He's in a re-education camp in Vietnam, and he'd been there since, you know, 75. So basically it was almost like 10 years or something. Um, and um, and that he had been a writer. So I had this other narrative, and I remember going to school, like I was a freshman in high school, and I remember going to school, like, the next week and telling my friends at lunch, like, I had this, like, weird story to tell them. Um, and... So for me, it was like this kind of story, and it never crossed my mind that that was like something that I would, you know, I would ever meet him because in the 80s, that's pretty much, um, you know, what people believed. Like that's what my mother was living and what other Vietnamese people of that generation were living, that like very possibly like n nobody was going to return to Vietnam and that people in Vietnam were, weren't going to get out of Vietnam. Um, so that's pretty much what I grew up with that's that's kind of one of the big formative you know narratives and I think because of the family that I was growing up in and the way that my mother and my stepfather were very focused on you sever from the past and you just move on and this was their survival method um I didn't think much about it emotionally yeah um until like my 20s and it was actually when I was in graduate school at Iowa and I had this travel stipend that was like part of my fellowship when I was there so I had this opportunity to return to Vietnam um, and I had this opportunity to to look for my father um, and my mom basically you know gave me the address of a friend who would know where he was and so that's that's you know, that's when I did. So that, that's one of the big erasures, I guess, of my... Yeah, I mean, um, I feel like your your book, the last two books in particular, could, if it was just about irretrievable memory, 
because you were too young yeah. when your family uh, fled the fall of Saigon and came to the United States to have primary memories, you you would still be uh, dealing with um, fragments and trying to make meaning yeah. from an absence. But then on top of it, you have yeah. a family structure that's um, withholding or erasing for their own survival. Yes. But it's a very American thing in the sense that it feels like... Um, your your mom doesn't want to talk about the past yeah. because she wants you to be free. Yes. And similarly, your um, stepdad, he mm-hmm. doesn't go back to Denmark no. at any point. Yeah. And you aren't speaking Danish or Vietnamese in the <laughs> yeah. home. You're speaking English. So they're uh-huh. all everyone's um, yeah. turned away from something. Yeah. And I think that like for me like that caused like this thing inside me that actually was pretty painful. Like it's like a, you know, kind of, I think somewhere in my late adolescence when I realized that like, you know, my, my stepdad never went back to Denmark, you know, his mother was waiting for him to return. He like left in his twenties and told her he would be back in two years, you know, and then he just never returned. Um, like even to visit, um, like I realized that there's something that or I got this sense that there's something that happens psychically in, in a person in order to do that. And so there's a big cost basically involved. In, and I associated that with like this American concept of self-reinvention. So there's like we have this opportunity to totally rewrite ourselves and maybe rewrite our history or restart it. Um, and <laughs> but it's also at this like you know, if you want to call it emotional cost or psychological cost, like there is something that gets severed. Um, or, or sometimes the, a cost that's put on another, another yeah, people. Like to think that your children are not going to suffer it um, is that that's a question. Like it's hard. Like I, I have my own personal feelings about it, but I realize that it's like a, maybe just something to leave open ended as in like some people are fine with it um, and they do, mm-hmm. you know, they don't need that attachment to the past um yeah but yeah in, in case you just tuned in we're talking to Dow strom about her poetry collection you will always be someone from somewhere else if we look at your four books in the broadest mm-hmm. sense and the yeah. trajectory and i may be projecting something that's <laughs> not there but i'm curious to your thoughts it feels like they they move from the more conventional to the less conventional and also to more maybe avant-garde mm-hmm. press presses as well. So your first book, a, a novel with some biographical elements, yeah. and then your second book, a collection of stories with Vietnamese American protagonists, but that mm-hmm. defies some expectations, particularly I think of, of white readers of what a Vietnamese story yeah. should look like. But then we take this leap in your memoir and in this poetry collection, and and we're now in a world of image text and and yeah. music in the memoir and image and text here. Um, and I wondered if that parallels this move towards hybridity and hybrid text, if that parallels uh, um, not being able to tell the story you want to tell the way you want to tell it in these other forms. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there's there are like events <laughs> there are reasons like just career reasons why like all of that has happened along the way um and i guess to sum it up i would say that um you know like i i did a lot of my early learning through like you know very like standard western or narrative um forms um 
you know, I guess a, a form of like, you know, being indoctrinated or being colonized by like, like Western ideas and, and growing up in like white, white spaces. Like I grew up in a very small, you know, a rural town that was largely white people and also very Christian. Um, and I went to the IR writers workshop, which some people will say that is more narrative based, um, definitely at the time that I was there and I was in the fiction program. So, um, you know, realistic fiction of a certain type was, was, you know, um, was prevalent. Um, so I think like, it's, it's kind of like I, I learned through these forms and even musically, like I started my learning with like folk and country music. So, um, so I think kind of moving into like, at some point, like just, I was always struggling with form, even in that first book. And, having a hard time like just whatever I needed to do or say or how I needed to say it like it was having a hard time fitting into those containers Mm. and I guess like it just kind of ended up breaking out or just um like or needing to so it it was really a process for me to try to to open myself up to like finding a more experimental way um and finding this hybrid form and and these these threads had always been parallel without me really realizing it. Like I studied film when I was an undergraduate. So it's like the visual was, you know, there. Like I was interested in it early on. And then um, and then I started playing music sometime in my early 20s. So it's like like all these things were kind of, I feel like maybe unconsciously being prepared for me to find like this this hybrid form that mm-hmm. incorporated the three voices. And um so I, I, yeah, it hasn't been easy. Like it's been a very searching path for part of the time. But it's, um, I think, like f- I think I've found more of like what I was supposed to do or how I was supposed to listen to my own voice um, when I came upon the hybrid form. Yeah, so. um, I'm going to read a, a quote of yours okay. that I that I really love, and then I want to ask you something about some of the form in, in the poetry okay. collection. So you, you once said, hybridity is a way of saying we are neither this nor completely that. At the same time, we are this and we are that, maybe even that other that too. And it's all subject to change. We might dissolve or evolve any boundaries. We will not stay put where you think you've safely placed us, named us, tried to corral us. Neither this nor that, neither of here nor there wholly. Such territories are not always supported, condoned, understood, or even accurately perceived by either the here's or theirs the artists have strayed from. They abide in a state of ambiguity, hard to define, unwilling to capitulate, limboed in a sort of accepted tenuousness of being. That's that's an amazing quote. <laughs> um, but I, I was hoping maybe you could speak to that yeah. in the ways in which, well, in general, but also in the ways that you're employing uh, parentheticals oh, in the poetry collection yeah. and also the the plus and plus minus that appears throughout the book. Yeah, I guess there's something about ambiguity and there's something about contradiction that is important to me. And maybe there's something about indefinition, which like even as I speak, I risk like trying to define it. And I think anybody who's an artist like kind of understands like you're doing this dance with this like creature or this like you know force that's like hard to pin down um and 
Um, and then at the same time, we live in a society which really likes to have like, you know, categories and have things like be pretty concrete and defined and be able to talk about things like, you know, really succinctly. Um, I, I think that I, I think that I'm trying to honor some other like type of principle or some other type of rhythm in, in doing this hybrid work. Um, and it has to do with Vietnam and it maybe also has to do with the feminine and like whether you want to call it feminist or feminine, like there's maybe it's, you know, it's some other, <laughs> it's the opposite of the yang, you know, like concrete, physical, material um, modes of action in the world. And um, so. Do you associate yeah. the feminine or the feminist with the hybrid? Um it's like I, I feel like it's that might be like too simple to say, but it's definitely something different than whatever is, you know, prevalent in, in a patriarchal like or a hero, materialist a hero narrative. Yeah. Like so it's it's like I, I guess I think of the Western narrative or just like as having one 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 main character and one main through line and and having you know, being based more on plot, on like action. Um, so maybe the opposite of that is something that is passive and something that it deals with interiority or, you know, a sort of amorphousness, um, and that is indirect. So, so maybe those are qualities that I've, I've, that have like spoken to me more, I guess, or like that, um, that make, you know, that, that are more <laughs> aligned with whatever I'm trying to do. Um, and yeah, so I, and I and I feel like that relates to Vietnam, um, in some crucial way. Maybe it's just for me, but um, but I feel like there's maybe that's like the underrepresented or the the side that we're not listening to as much. And um, I don't know. I I'm kind of like my mind is like wandering. But I think about um, like I think about the metaphor of a cave, and I've t I've talked to other people about like the caves in Vietnam. Um, and there's, you know, this very big cave system in central Vietnam. I don't know if you've heard of it, the Phong Nha Caves. Uh -huh. And uh, and according to, like, some of the stories that I've read, like, it's, like, there's one cave that is purported to be the world's largest cave. And it was only recently, they say, discovered or, like, open to the public, like, you know, recently. Like, I don't know, I think it was 2013 or something. Um, but... Like, to me, that's, like, this metaphor of, like, there's this whole, like, interiority that, that has existed in a land and in a culture and, you know, um, and it's, it's, and it, it hides this different kind of beauty and it hides this different kind of landscape and it's always been there, um, you know, but from our perspective, like, the stories that we're reading about it, we're just, you know, we're, it's, it's, you know, being exposed now or whatever, or some French explorer, or Australian, like, you know, explorer has like helped, you know, the rest of the world be able to go and visit this place. Um, so I, I guess that's like, for me, I think about that in terms of Vietnam, that there's like this whole, you know, I, I don't know, like, there's more like underneath the surface. And then I guess I think about like how to apply that in terms of art. Or, yeah, does yeah, that make any sense? That does make sense. <laughs> I, I, it feels like you're you're um, destabilizing the notion of country too, because you have this meditation, yeah. 
Yeah. Or, well, you, you, in the hybrid quote, you talk about neither here nor there and both here and there, which, of course, when I think of your biography, I'm thinking of the United States and Vietnam as, yeah. as two of, of two things that could fit into that calculus. Yeah. But then you have this, this um, meditation in the book, the root of the word country takes us back to contra against and to a phrase where the concept of country is arrived at via an act of seeing the terrain spread out before one, terra contrata, the body must separate itself from what it views in order to name said vision. Hence the act of first sighting or sighting land also becomes one's initiation of separation. Yeah. Which is interesting. <laughs> like it seems like only a hybrid form where you could stand in two places at once could yeah. somehow solve this idea that um, of country yeah. not being a separation. I think that di- like a lot of people in the diaspora might relate to that idea of like, you know, neither here nor there. Like we are of like these many places all together. Um, and I, I feel like that applies, like it, it can apply to a lot of people and like just to different degrees. Um, but maybe it's also a, an attempt to free ourselves or for me to free myself from like this attachment of identity it's really hard to figure out, like, you know, where where to base my identity. And I think it, at my core, I have kind of a resistance toward um, toward defining identity in terms of like, you know, nation mm-hmm. <laughs> or geography or culture. Even even though, you know, yeah, I'm really Vietnamese. I like there's a ethos and there's a history and there's like all this that I strongly identify with. Um, but at the same time. I, I don't or I, I like, you know, I'm kind of open to to letting it <laughs> be contradicted. Yeah. Or, if you okay. don't mind, maybe yeah. this is a good time just to read a brief uh, one paragraph on, on page 10. Okay. Sometimes parents will give their children mythologies when they can no longer stomach history. From my mother, I learned the prototypical origin myth that one about the hand lifting earth to mouth and the inconceivability of the mountain to hold the water that inevitably leaves her for the sea. Mythologies have their way of explaining the basic human condition, that there will always be somewhere or thing you wish to get to or back to, which is another way of saying they explain wars. Longing is a state of mind which is also to say longing is a mental love. We've been listening to Daustrom read from You Will Always Be Someone from Somewhere Else. So when I think of giving one's kids mythologies when you can no longer stomach history, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about your family a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just your family, obviously, but this idea of of the American dream and of dreaming and of like an aspirational visioning that sort of reminds me of sleepwalking in a way, like, yeah. like you're, you're act, enacting what's in your head, but you're not really aware of, of where you are at the same time. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense, but, but it, but it feels like, um, in your last two books, you're part of what you're unpacking are, are the two countries dreams, <laughs> um, and troubling them and making them more complex, like the way you're discovering these caves in, in yeah. Vietnam. Um, so, you know, the way in America, 
Vietnam for a lot of non-Vietnamese Americans um, might just refer to a war mm-hmm. and not a country. Um, or the Ken Burns documentary yeah. talking almost entirely to white veterans Mm -hmm. or uh like in the vietnam memorial in dc um i think it was viet Thanh Nguyen who quoted a photographer who said that if it were to contain all the names (laughs) of the people who were vietnamese who died it wouldn't be 150 yards long but nine miles long yeah um you wrote this essay uh called vietnam is a seven letter word uh, yeah, for uh, diacritics. Yeah. yeah, and it's about the ways in which um, when you've gone and performed your music or read some of your work, the ways it's um, prompted white war veterans to mm-hmm. approach you in a specific way, and then you meditate on this. Um, yeah. It's really fascinating to me, and I was I was hoping maybe you could just share a little bit of your thoughts about it and, yeah. and that time you, that, you know, before... Uh, Viet Nguyen was a was a celebrity <laughs> when he was just yeah. here at Powell's on Hawthorne, and there were fifteen people in the audience. So yeah, yeah. How he was involved a little bit in this story. Yeah. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit um, about? Yeah, I went to see. Yeah, I wrote the essay in response to the Ken Burns when the Ken Burns documentary came out um, in, I guess, last fall, and I don't think I'm alone in like a lot of the Vietnamese American responses were just you know kind of like oh like that it's still telling an American narrative. And I guess, as I see it, Americans are kind of obsessed with themselves and then are, you know, I it's I feel like this is, like, not the most accurate word, but I want to say, like, patriarchal culture is, like, obsessed with the experiences of men and men in war. And so, like, a lot of, you know, and I know there's still, like, there's a lot of trauma that the nation and that, like, the men who served in there are obviously going through. But, um, yeah, I went to the this reading when Viet came to Powell's, and that was before he won the Pulitzer. And, um, and there weren't that many people in the audience. And, of course, there were some vets in the audience who... Um, and I'd had this experience, too, when I read that, you know, there would always be some older, middle-aged white men there who had served, and they're, like... Um, you know, there for, I guess, the content, because it has to do with Vietnam. But then we went out later, and one of the vets was sitting at the table with us in the bar. And I just remember it kind of evolved into um, the three Asian people at the table listening to, you know, this white veteran, like, talking, and he was talking about his trauma. And I don't want to, like, say it in this like judging like way I mean it's it's very real and I recognize that um as a need and um and then and most of the times I've been happy to listen um but it does it it is just an example of like (laughs) white trauma taking up space at the table um so that even when we're like criticizing war even when like literature is like criticizing like the american presence and foreign policies in other lands it's still it's still kind of obsessed with like even america's like um culpability or something and um and i i feel like that's you know to the detriment of like actually still listening or letting letting the other voices the marginalized voices have some room at the table to speak and tell stories that maybe don't include you know themselves in relation to america um 
and I think as both as a woman and as like a Vietnamese person, like there's this thing that happens where, you know, um, I guess like my body or my presence becomes like a catalyst <laughs> to, uh, you know, or just a something like a sounding board or a catalyst or something against which like, you know, the American experience or I, I don't know, I'm getting a little bit inarticulate now. No, about no, it. I think you're, but <laughs> you're being really articulate. <laughs> but, yeah. um, and, and so it's, you know, I, I look at it from a point of observation. Oh, it's interesting. But I also, as like, as I get older and as it goes on, I, I get a little tired of it and I'm trying to push back as far as like, I think that, you know, um, you know, it's time to hear those other stories and, and I guess it's time for us, you know, like who are more marginalized to, to, to say something about it. Um, well, that's why I thought a little bit about this idea of the, of dreaming yeah. in the sense that it would be different if, say, the white veterans were showing up at these events and then they were going out afterwards and saying, I just want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, then if, not. Then if, they're, <laughs> if you're sort of like playing a role in yeah. their dream, essentially, like a working or their nightmare yeah. uh, in this case, um, yeah. and they need you there as yeah. sort of a secondary piece to their uh, recovery. Yeah, I there's yeah, it's definitely us. I, I think that in in some of those cases, maybe it's a a need for um, some affirmation or some connection to a Vietnamese person that tells them, you know, that uh, that recognizes that they suffered too, or maybe even like some you know want of reconciliation or forgiveness or something. Um, and almost it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who the person is individually. It's like it's just having that, you know, Vietnamese or that Asian body there to like kind of yeah. reflect that experience off of. Um, I think it kind of goes back to a form of narcissism that Americans have or that America has. Like if I want to just generalize it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and what it makes me think of too is when I think about the challenges of what you're trying to write. So we have the challenges of you um, not having memory. Yeah. Just by the um, chance of how old you were mm-hmm. um, during the refugee experience, and then your family creating a narrative that's sort of decoupled from your past yeah. and your history, and then you have you don't have the audience here coming to the work. Um, with neutrality they've come with a sense of no thinking they know yeah like they have a certain idea of what a vietnamese person or vietnamese american person is or should be um i think that that is like one of the biggest obstacles or limits for vietnamese american writers but for asian american writers in general it's just that the you know white readership or just the general american readership which is not always white um has this like very limited context for what they expect of Asian, the Asian American experience. And it's usually having to do with like, you know, whether it's like immigration or like refugee, like resettlement and assimilation um, and just ideas of family and food, I notice is like a big trope that like, you know, expecting Asian writers to write about food or family. Um, And I think that like I, I, I'm aware of not having I'm aware of working in a, a context where there isn't like a lot of 
information or context already placed um, for the story that I'm that I'm trying to tell or the history that I'm working in. So the nuances are, um, you know, are not as legible or accessible, mm. I guess, to you know, a wider readership. Um, and I, I guess I accept that as part of it. Um, and then, like, I want to work in a space where I'm I'm writing for, I don't know who I'm writing for, but I know that I'm not trying to write for, like, a white audience. I'm not trying to cater to, like, having to instruct um, or, or give that context. And I'm, I'm glad there's other people that are doing it. And then I feel like it's also, it falls on that first generation or like you know crop of writers to really do a lot of that work of like what happened and what the context um and I think that part of like working in hybrid forms um like it might also be kind of a defense mechanism that I've put up in a way but not totally consciously but but um where like I've noticed that sometimes I've gone into reading situations or talking about it and people actually like ask about the form or like they're like what's going on with this rather than like focusing on kind of the sensational details of like you know my life or that my father was in a re-education camp and I'm I think I'm like purposefully trying not to write those things in a conventional narrative fashion where they can be like made into a you know just a drama, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, so there's something about using the form in that way too. That's um, that I don't. I yeah. I can. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but mm. but um, I feel like Vicky now is uh, we're we've had conversations about this too, where it's just like, you know, even though she wasn't writing about Vietnamese characters, she was saying that her work was very Vietnamese. Um, so in a way, like I think that that's similar like with the hybrid forms like I feel like what I'm doing is there's something you know Vietnamese about it there's something that is particular to my background and to whatever perspective I'm trying to you know evoke or give space for Mm -hmm. Um, well if we were to also look at the way Vietnam dreams itself into being so here we're talking about the way America dreams itself and dreams Vietnam, but in that short excerpt you read, it hints at the yeah. the folk tale of the mountain mother and the mm-hmm. dragon father that have to divide their yeah. hundred offspring, and you sort of use that and other things that are braiding collective memory and self yeah. uh, for, formation of of selfhood with your own personal biography, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting was. Um, the way you interrogate the Vietnamese self-identity mm-hmm. as a country of fighting off. And I was wondering if you could That's unpack another, that a little bit. Um, and if there's a relationship, maybe you can explain a little bit about why that is the case what, and what that identity is. And then I wonder, because I feel like you crave to find something before yeah. this identity of a country at war, mm-hmm. even way before the French and the Americans. Yeah. And is that somehow about finding I don't want to psychoanalyze, but is that also somehow about leaping that gap of memory too, like the what the origin before yeah. the absence? Um, yeah, those are all like astute reads, like definitely. Um, I, Vietnam has its mythologies too. Um, and like growing up as a Vietnamese person in America, and, and I don't, I can't speak for Vietnamese people in Vietnam, 
Um, but one of the things that I was told, and this is a story my mom retold, was this folk this folk tale about this origin myth. And, you know, um, there's a fairy mother. She's this whatever goddess or something. And then there's a dragon father. And they have 100 children, and then they're separated. And my mom told this story as, like, kind of a metaphor also for the separation of, like, North and South Vietnam so that this element of necessary separation was like at our core um and kind of irreconcilable um you know and then and then this you know it it kind of the myth sort of like projects itself onto the exodus of like the south vietnamese people in 1975 and then we're scattered like you know all over the world um and i guess there's that, and then there is also the the history of Vietnam that we weren't just at war with the Americans. We were we've been at war for you know a thousand years, like against the Chinese for like you know centuries. So we were we've always been fighting, and we're essentially like a warrior people, um, and we fight for our independence. And we're always like you know fighting off invaders. Um, so there's this like fierce independence in that mythology too, and a fierce attachment to you know, Vietnam, whatever that culture or the soil is. Um, so I guess, yeah, like part of my question and part of the the irony in the title, which is just a phrase that came to me, you know, we were meant to be a gentle people. Like it, it obviously doesn't totally fit with that warrior mythology. Um, so maybe in a sense, I am looking for something before, or I was asking, and that was a question I was asking is like, who, so who are we before like these wars or who are we before we are identified in juxtaposition or in opposition with like another force, Um, which also kind of goes back to the feminine masculine and this like, this, you know, definition of like um, war and separation, like that there's always like, so, yeah, so there's, I don't have the answers to that. And then, I mean, there are like, you know, you can look further into Vietnamese mythology and find like, you know, we're, we were a matriarchal society, like actually, like it was the women that owned property. And, and then there's like hints of like these, you know, earlier, like, like cosmologies that point to like, um, you know, like other, uh, but that's a really simplistic way of just you know, deducing it too. So I don't, I'm right. kind of resistant to just like saying that's, we should return to that. So I'm, I'm like, that's part of the search, I guess. That but, I but try the attempt to try to stick your head outside of the dream Yeah. in a way, like you have this anecdote you share about visiting a, a son of a friend of your mother in Bellevue, Washington. Yeah. Who's for him, he just totally flips the script. Like he sees the, the um, diaspora as this, uh, v- the Vietnamese diaspora is this great moment of, yeah. of opportunity mm-hmm. and um, what a wonderful time to be alive as a Vietnamese yeah. person because it's the first time that millions of us are scattered across yeah. the globe versus just being in Vietnam, mm-hmm. which uh, I'm not saying that, I'm not putting that forth as something to endorse as a viewpoint, but but as just maybe the surprise someone might feel yeah. at hearing it told, like, outside of the expected narrative. But I think it's both ways. Like, that might be the reality is that it, it can be looked at in both ways where, 
um, maybe it's just like a fundamental, like a human, like experience, like, you know, do you look at like, like there is, there is something that, you know, like attachment to country and attachment to nation and attachment to tradition were definitely things that like somebody like my mother was trying to break free of because Vietnam is also a really patriarchal country and culture and and it can be argued that it wasn't always um so something you know there something happened somewhere and I, I don't have all the like like history details but I think that there's there's probably a point when there was a shift um and for somebody like my mother growing up in the 60s, 70s, you know, it was really restrictive or just, you know, you're expected to get married and then you move into your husband's household and you, you take care of, like, the family. Um, and things like being a writer or smoking cigarettes or, like, just, you know, like there were so many things that my mom was doing that were very rebellious or being, like, you know, being sexually expressive. And, and um, so... So I, I I see that there's like like when something gets too rigid, like there's there's a positive aspect to it breaking free or just um, and maybe that's like the interpretation of the diaspora when it's like you know, so there's freedom. There's freedom in like realizing like we're not attached to anything or we can become something else or we can be all of these things at once and it can be like an empowering thing. But then it can also be something to lament if you are of the nature of somebody who wants to be attached to place and family and um, and a little more, like, sentimental about those things. So I guess I kind of, like, I can see both sides, and I feel both sides, actually, mm -hmm. too. Um, and it's, I yeah, I don't have an answer to it being one way or the other, but I feel like it's, like, kind of a fundamental, like, tension that we inhabit. Well, let's maybe this is a good time for people to hear a little bit more <laughs> okay. of the of the poetry. It goes back all the way back to when the world was covered in early mists. I know there are times even before this one, but here is where my memories memories begin. There is a whiteness to the land and a startling clear quality to the atmosphere, an opalescence. Our bodies have something of this opalescence and our faces have no features, not like faces have now. You might even say our bodies are translucent or parts of what is inside merge with parts of what is outside. We sense rather than see and we are sexless too or we are still forming our sexes in this time. We are nomadic in this time until comes a point when the land begins to harden and form dark patches amid the whiteness, land bridges are forming. It's the best phrase I have for them. Terrestrial matter that bridges something otherwise untenable. And something about the new land makes us slow down and stay longer, way more than we normally would in a season. And here we begin to encounter others who are slightly different from us, denser. And somewhere in here too, Love is ignited. I don't know why for sure, but it is. Something grows in the space between our legs. She is sitting on the ground, the shape of her like a basket or stone, rounded on the outside, fluid and mysterious inside. She is brown, a brown form in a world of white. She is earth, 
and in this time I am like something descended from the sky or made of sky. In her I see how tired I am growing. I am coming down looking for a home, for a place to land. You will travel far in the company of men with paler skin than you, duller skin over time. You will feel sometimes acutely tired, but you will also find it difficult to rest. You will feel lonely, very likely, often. You will, at times, feel that you miss someone or thing you cannot remember. You will come to places where sometimes the trees, the lay of the land, the music and the movement of the water, the way the light strikes objects, these simple forms of witness, will almost remind you of who or how it was. You will love deeply just a few times. This will become your best vehicle for remembering. Love, this particular kind, will snap you out of it, your father's world, at those times when you most need it. And then you will know, daughter, our ideas are real. So much that we forget. I forget that in another time we knew each other, importantly, I forget the day dawned without time, without thought, and I stood watching the sun, reading the sky. I forget there were breachers and watchers and seers. I forget there were hunters and helpers. I forget there were rivers that were our friends and our meeting places. I forget there were markers once to tell us how far we'd come, and then somewhere along the way they just stopped, meaning we'd gone further than any of us had ever gone before. I forget the ocean heaved when the sky broke. I forget whether the water came from above or below or both. I remember you, though. You walked. I ran. The water was our agency. A flash of white connected us, an idea of union, like an envelope encasing me with only that whom I loved. We've been listening to Daustrom read from You Will Always Be Someone from Somewhere Else. So speaking of dreams and origin stories, yeah. there's one, a, a country that existed for 20 years, South Vietnam, mm-hmm. that no one really talks about, but uh, which both of your biological parents have a lot of, uh, I would guess, I don't know if nostalgia is the right word, but a lot of esteem for yeah. the project of the country, mm-hmm. or at least the dream of the project of South Vietnam when it did exist. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you think they might articulate that dream, and then the ways in which um, what they were accused of as urban intellectuals as the political climate changed. Yeah, um, well, South Vietnam technically, I guess, existed from 1954 to 1975. um, And that would have been, my mom came from the north with her family in 54, and she was 10 at the time. So she came of age in South Vietnam. And the way she described it to me was, um, you know, the country was at war. That was also the time in which, like, the Americans were occupying South Vietnam. but it was also like a time of um, a lot of influences coming in from outside. So she got a lot of exposure to things like Western culture and democracy and, you know, 
the Beatles and like, you know, just things like that where <laughs> right. it's like, so all these things were coming in and they kind of like for her, like expanded her way of thinking about the world and thinking about what was possible. And, um, and she was, you know, uh, like she was really into education. Like she has a story about how she, you know, instead of spending the money that she was supposed to spend on food, she bought books, you know, and she was defying her father in like wanting to go and take, you know, classes on French literature or something. Um, and she, I guess, started writing stories pretty early and she, she published when she was young and she was part of a group of um, Vietnamese women writers who were considered very modern and very like pioneering in that time they were nicknamed the five she devils and um, my mom was one of those writers and um, she was saying she'll describe it as like things were very easy to make happen at that time like I think there was like a lot of energy where like somebody could just like write something and publish it or they could be like let's make a movie and like you know let's start a newspaper and so there was that energy of like people wanting to do these things and so all these things were happening and um and they were very aware of like also living in a time of you know contradictions and corruptions the south vietnamese government had corruption in it and at the same time knowing that the communist you know government was not better like there had been atrocities that the communist government you know had 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 committed, you know, so people knew about these things. And, um, and my mom and my, my birth father started, they were the founders of a newspaper. Um, and I'm not going to, my, my Vietnamese pronunciation is not perfect, but it was called Song Tan. And the title translates to tidal wave. And that was their idea for that name was like this tidal wave of you know, action or, or truth or justice or whatever they were fighting was, you know, that was what their, their newspaper was going to be about. And they were just trying to, I think, tell the truth or just, you know, like resist. Um, and it wasn't a small paper, was it? Um, it was a fairly large, like, I, like, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was well known. So in the Saigon intellectual community of that time, they were well known. And, um, like my mom was, like she's 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 famous like and I put like whatever that means in terms of you know having been like a, f a semi-famous intellectual in pre-1975 Saigon um it's something that I will like I'll encounter occasionally like people of her generation and if I say what my mom did they'll they'll have heard of her newspaper or they'll have heard of her and um and um and there's other writers that she's still in the circle of. But it's also this interesting history because it's been erased officially. So, you know, after 75, a lot of those writers were banned and their books were burned. And my mom's, you know, included on that list. Um, so they're not in the official, <laughs> like, record of, like, the communist Vietnam's history. And then also, you know, in in America, of course, like a lot of that's not translated or it's not translated well. And, and a lot of people don't care, um, just because it's just too much nuance as far as like trying to understand, you know, what South Vietnam was trying to do. Um, so, so, so yeah, so that's another interesting erasure. And I think that like, if you talk to a South Vietnamese person and there are people like trying to do this work, um, you know, like even something like Ken Burns, the Ken Burns documentary, 
or or the popular conception of of South Vietnam would be that we were corrupt and we were like you know the puppet government or just like the people needed the Americans help they couldn't they couldn't win the war without it or they didn't know what they were doing or just you know this kind of victim like inferior complex and so I think if you speak to a South Vietnamese person especially of that generation they would want you to know that they were you know fighting effectively and that there were also like efforts like in the citizenship and that there was a lot going on and like my mom's newspaper is one example of that of like um an example of like citizens people like you know kind of a grassroots effort um to you know i guess take care of their own society or um so so yeah so that's that's some of the history that you know was going on at that time and it's it, it like if i think about like i was born to a temporary country like it's kind of this line or this this concept that i think of like it's you know it's just an interesting thought like you know it doesn't exist anymore technically and um so it's like it can be both liberating or it can be both like kind of startling or you know mm. unsettling um and my father I, I yeah he's he was he chose to stay so after that you know 75 and one one aspect of erasure in your history that we didn't mention is that when he does come to the states he he wants to write a memoir about yeah. his experience in the re-education camps but then deletes the memoir yeah, before and anyone was, sees it that was just one conversation that I had with him and I've actually I haven't spent a lot of physical time with him like it's you know it's been just a handful of visits um, but yeah I remember having that conversation with him and I wrote about that particular conversation where um, he you know had been working on a memoir and then he he deleted it um, and I don't know exactly why or except except that it's you know maybe just like there's not you know it's hard to tell a story like that but in reality, he's still like he actually is a publisher. Like he he runs a publishing. You know, he he publishes Vietnamese writers, and as far as I understand, he's publishing a lot of Vietnamese writers that can't get published in Vietnam, who are you know would be you know considered like just like dissident or just have a hard time you know being published by the state. Um, and. Uh, I think that there is just the maybe the major like as far as I understand it and I don't want to speak to like as if I'm an authority on like it but but I think that in Vietnam there are state-run publishing or state-approved publishing houses um, but then there is a lot of underground or there is underground publishing happening yeah and, well in your memoir you say you have a, a line that says something like language is the orphaner <laughs> that made me think of the of two ways in which that was true for you in the sense that literally the language of your parents yeah. is part of what causes the the yeah. uh flight to the United States um and then the other is the withholding of language mm -hmm. the um that you aren't taught Vietnamese yeah. and that you're part of a, uh an active attempt to um be free of history yeah. And and you you wrote I think on diacritics about how sometimes you'll meet uh other Vietnamese people or Vietnamese Americans and they'll and they'll say so you're Vietnamese but you are not really Vietnamese yeah. when they discover that you don't speak the language. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm interested in that in regards to, um, I think the attempt of diacritics and, and probably decanon in a larger sense for people of color, but certainly yeah. your, your two books of, of inviting, um, a less essentialist view of what it means to be yeah. of, of any group, a essentially. Good way to like, that's a, yeah, a good way to describe it just as essentialist. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'm not alone. And I think, um, yeah, there's Vietnamese people, like there is this attachment to language being like, access to the culture and there are people who will just very much like if you don't speak even though i i meet somebody's like parents and they try to speak to me in vietnamese and they realize that i don't speak it and then just like something happens like there's this shift of like you you know what they're thinking like they're just they're like disapproving of my mother or they're wondering what happened you know um (laughs) and it's um so it's very real that there is that level of like bias or prejudice um and then I, I guess um, I felt like diacritics and the other writers that are involved in in that that mission. Um, a lot of a lot of us aren't fluent, um, and yet we're still you know wrestling with being Vietnamese and this history and our families and sharing a lot of the you know just the the things that have happened or just there's similar traumas or similar reactions and wounds. And so, so I, I guess like I'm in a lot of ways I'm trying to get beyond language or I'm trying to like, um, I, it's like language is important and language is access and it's a way of communication, but it's also a way of limiting like us, um, we also fail to communicate and we also fail to um, recognize people who aren't communicating in the same language that we recognize. So, and then we also... Or we use it to separate. Yeah, we also use language like as rhetoric and as propaganda. And I'm I'm very aware of that in terms of like, well, writing fiction um, or just in terms of like, you know, the way the communists use language or the way that like, you know, just even like words like freedom or words like, you know, I just, there, there's this rhetoric that, that language can be used for. Um, and so I think uh, there's a part of me that is, all of that is suspect and, um, and it's another like it's like it's both here and it's both there kind of thing where it's like yes I dwell in words and I obsess about them and you know I I like have gained a lot from like having living a life like you know but and then there's also this realization that it's English so it's also the language of like the colonizers um, so there's so many levels of complexity to language. And that might be where where I also like aspire to music, where it's just like, okay, I don't know. Like there's yeah. there's And juxtaposing the language with image. Yeah. Like trying to some sort of entry way that's different. Yeah, or challenging the authority of like what language is supposedly telling us. Um Yeah. Which makes me think when you, you were mentioning Vicky now mm-hmm. and, and what she said on, on this yeah, show, actually, I and you, that. you'd yes. written this thing. And I was just going to read the quote because yeah. it was so great, um, if I can find it here. So uh, Vicky now said, I do feel that there is a lot of the Vietnamese language in my writing. It's just invisible. When people say, this sentence is strange, I don't think it's strange. It's just, it just has a lot of Vietnamese in it. <laughs> 
my Vietnamese past in it, and so it gave that English word or sentence that slant. It has my somatic system of Vietnamese-ness embedded within, between each word of the English word, or between the letters of that English word, that when people read it, they think, oh, your work is really strange and poetic. I don't think it's strange and poetic. I think it's because I lived in Vietnam. I was an immigrant. We were refugees. When I read my work, I'm like, this is so Vietnamese, but it doesn't look like Vietnamese. It doesn't even sound like Vietnamese. But there is a phantom sonic volume that is quiet and silence. And I want to say that silence, that invisibility, is very Vietnamese. It tastes and sounds like pho, and when you eat it, you feel like you're eating something very postmodern, but it's traditionally Vietnamese. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah she so... captured it so like beautifully. Yeah. Um, and she speaks Vietnamese. She does. So that's interesting to hear yes. her... Uh-huh. Um, operating in the English world. Yeah, yeah. By choice to some degree, but also probably based also on the reality of like the publishing world mm-hmm, where she lives. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that she's seen it there yeah. beyond letters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, I think she captures like this sense of, I mean, she's also used the word tenderness about like the language. Um and I, I guess that's when, like, sometimes when I, when I've described like what it means to me to be Vietnamese, like there's an ethos about it, and, um, and yeah, it's it's hard to describe, but it's you know it has to do with the sorrow, it has to do with like, the way that we've like absorbed what has happened throughout history, um, and then like it's it there is a certain ethos that's reflected that ache. Um, or, uh, yeah, it's hard to articulate. <laughs> yeah. If you don't mind, I'm going to have you read another short, okay. a little short piece. A separation myth is a middle-class prestige we pull. My own marriage has more than once been beset upon by it. One year, I thought a cure might be enacted by returning together to the place I'd previously traveled to alone, which was also the originating place I'd been severed from. I wore wings for this trip. We traveled along hectic, inhospitable roads to the oldest standing stones we could make our way to. The ruins of the Champa civilization were called discovered in the late 1800s by French archaeologists who were enthralled at having found such cultural treasures. The Vietnamese, who presumably already knew of those stone feats in the jungle, may have thought it just as well to let the jungle keep them, for you have to let the jungle have something or she will take back everything eventually. But white men come, and often they are intent on saving or vanquishing when they do. On our marriage-saving trip, I hauled my wings in a blue plastic case from north to south. Everywhere we went, the items we bought, entry fees we paid, cost double or triple the local fare, exacted from us with distrustful, scrutinizing eyes. Some charges were blatantly duplicitous. At moments, anger would mount in me. I'm from here too, I wanted to shout, and I've spent a lifetime caring and carrying what you think I've forgotten, what you think making us pay more for now will somehow vindicate. At the same time, I understood well enough where the urge for retribution came from, 
the years and dynamics implicit, wool-sick nature of my own tongue, white partner beside me. At the Dalat airport, the security officer sent me back to the airline desk to pay more tacked-on fees, and at Tansan Nut, we had to buy our air tickets to Cambodia twice. These small harassments felt like tolls being exacted for something I could not quite put my finger on. Then I set my wings down in the Siam Reap airport, and they were gone when I turned back for them. We've been listening to Dow Strom read from You Always Be Someone from Somewhere Else. So can you tell us a little bit about the wings? Because we have a... <laughs> Throughout this book and your memoir, we have a series of photographs of you with wings. Yeah. And it's evoking some mythology around wings. Tell Um, us a little bit about it. It goes back to that origin myth about the the fairy mother who's the the um the mother of the Vietnamese people. Um I think there's some mythology where the there's something about the goddesses and Oko is one of the, the goddesses, she's the mother. Um and they they come down in the form of birds, um, and then she eats a handful of dirt, and she can't fly back up to the heavens, and so she's left on Earth, and her sisters have to leave her, um, and that's how she ends up being coming the mountain mother. Um, and I guess I just I had this idea at some point. I had this like vision of like wearing a pair of wings and standing in a waterfall, and I just like this image that I wanted to like play with. Um, and so I actually like had a pair of wings made um, and I had this idea that I wanted to take pictures with them in like landscapes and I wanted to visit the Cham ruins, which um, they are the indigenous people of Vietnam. And they and, and, and in, in particular, like I, I guess the time that I'd visited before, like visiting those ruins was like one of the places that I felt the most, just um, some sense of something. And so I wanted to to go back and stand in those places. Um, And I guess I think of like the pictures of taking these pictures with the wings as like maybe a form of performance or a form of like just creating some sort of, you know, mythopoetic like sense for myself or for this world that I'm playing in. And um, and then just like I I think of the character. So I think of it as like a character that I'm, I'm playing with and. Um, and maybe maybe this character is like one of the daughters of of this this mother who's been separated and been cast out to other places and is trying to like find a way back or 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 something. Um, and I so, also wondered about whether it was shifting the the meaning of the word flight or reclaiming the word flight from a a negative oh, war torn yeah. sense to a. A That's, liberatory one. Yeah, I mean, I I guess flight is a part of it. I get, I wasn't thinking about it that that consciously, but I could see that. Yeah. Being yeah, an interesting way to read it. Well, I'd imagine when we're talking about a more pluralistic and less essentialist view of being Vietnamese, and yet still mm-hmm. um, encountering prejudice around language or around essential list nature, yeah. um, regardless of what it is, um, you going to Vietnam and then feeling like you're, you're taxed there specifically yeah. because of what you represent. It must be, I would imagine it must be gratifying to have a bilingual 
book being put out by a <laughs> Hanoi-based press that will have a Vietnamese audience yeah. in Vietnam in addition to having the audience here. I feel really grateful. I feel like it's it's um like it's uh, it's it's a wonderful like it's a wonderful and just um fortunate like interaction that I've been able to develop with the jar press. Um it means a lot to me in just the sense of like being able to have the the two languages like side by side and playing with each other. Um and I have to like just emphasize just my own like I guess deficiency and kind of humbleness and like that that sense of like um you know I had nothing to do with the Vietnamese translation like that was done by Li Thuy Nguyen and um and Na Thuyen um who is the Ajar one of the Ajar press editors um like just the editors have been wonderful in that interaction um and I guess it's a way for me to like explore like the Vietnamese language in like seeing my what I understand the English words and then reading the Vietnamese translation and then playing with the placement of them on the pages. Um, and I, I've I had done like some work with the jar press too where they translated one of my poems called The Fragments into Vietnamese and did a voice recording of it and and I cut up the 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 audio of that and you know juxtaposed it like with the English. So for me, it becomes this exercise of like listening or trying to listen. Mm. Um, it's also important that you mention that you're playing with uh, the Vietnamese because it's not simply uh, one page is your poem in English yeah. and then someone has translated it. But there are, there are pages where that's true. Yeah. But then there are pages where we get uh, consecutive pages in one language or the other or that the, the languages are interbraided. Yeah. Or interwoven with each other. Yeah, I think that my lack of language <laughs> also plays into um, my approaching it visually, and and that's also like something with the parentheticals and the the punctuation marks. Like there is this sense where like the letters and language just become like markings on the page, and they're like <laughs> things that I move around or I try to like I try to create a different rhythm with that you can see um, or that you can hear. Um, well, when you so, go back to them being marks on the page, it's like yeah. going back to the pictorial origin mm -hmm. of language too. Which is really fascinating to me. And that's something that I think about also, just that that divide between at what point words became, you know, like, yeah, signifiers that were abstract <laughs> versus like, our visual sense of the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, when I, when I think about y your project at Diacritics with Viet Thanh Nguyen, and I, I, you have this great conversation with him, maybe that's part of your passing the torch to you around being the editor. We did a Q&A. Yeah, mm -hmm. about this desire for uh, having a fluid and pluralistic notion of what yeah. it means to be Vietnamese. So while maybe maybe uh, the stereotype of an, a Vietnamese-American would be staunchly anti-communist and mm -hmm. pro-American, perhaps, as like a stereotype. Um, the Vietnamese in Germany or Poland are, tend yeah. to be communist. And to like allow for, oh, allow yeah. for all of these identities yeah. as part of the conversation, even ones that are um, 
maybe fraught relationships and then this fraught relationship that you bring up around yeah. around um do you speak the language or you don't speak the language or maybe people's biases that Vietnamese refugees are all farmers when mm -hmm. like your parents were urban yeah. intellectuals. Um, it made me wonder, like, for instance, about um, she who has no masters, this oh. this project you're doing of bringing uh, yeah. Vietnamese women together for uh, collaborative projects. Mm. How easy or difficult has that <laughs> been? Has that been something, you know, magically frictionless or has it been something oh. where you you find yourselves um, reiterating some of these uh attempts to um, essentialize certain aspects of identity at the cost of other people's experiences? Um, well, I would say that, like, I'll, I'll, like, focus on the pluralistic, like, I guess that project of collectivity and, like, collaboration and, and, and recognizing the multiplicity of voices is, um, like, that's been, like, that's a, a central force in it. And I think of... Um, like it, it comes out of disconnection. It comes out of like, I've, you know, written for 20 years, like feeling like I'm like the only Vietnamese person that I know who is like me. Um, and then, you know, gradually, like I have found other Vietnamese writers and, um, and found that we all <laughs> kind of feel the same. Like there's this, you know, sense of we've all been kind of scattered and working in isolation in different ways. And, and really it's, I guess, working in the midst of other cultures or other communities that, that we've ended up in. And um, so there's like, there there is a very intentional effort in coming together and trying to collaborate. Um, and I think of a, like a, a Vietnamese friend of my mom's once that I had a conversation with who was a history teacher. And she told me that Vietnamese people are, it was back to that story about them always fighting and being very independent. Um, or she was saying that Vietnamese people are really good leaders, but if you put them all in a room together, they're just going to fight. Um, and I, so I had this, you know, <laughs> like that was another mythology that I was given that we're all like, you know, we're just, we don't get along. We, we work better alone. Um, so I guess we're trying to like, you know, test that theory or just, or, or, or dismantle it, you know, disprove it. Um, and and then also just the fact that there are so many different stories in the diaspora. So, so at this point, there are so many different ways of being Vietnamese, depending on, you know, everything, like where you've grown up and, and you know, what the, the surrounding community is. And so um, I, I think that there's a necessity in having, like, multiple voices in the dialogue and... America maybe wants to make it very simple, um, like this is the Vietnamese American experience, and it happened this one way, or you know, just try. It's an easier thing to understand, um, but there, it's it's so complex, and um, yeah, and then part of she who has no masters having this polyvocality or multiple voices is just also another way to kind of defy that like one voice or that Western, you know, structure of there only being like one narrator. Um, and it's, do you feel like the inviting of a polyvocality into your work, both your collaborative work and your own work? Yeah. Um, does that in the best, in the best case scenario, does that involve sort of a, a process of inviting, um, 
maybe narratives that are fraught next to each other within oneself, like a prog- a, a self, yeah, a, a self uh, journey in the sense that I, when I think about you describing the first time you met your your dad in Vietnam, your biological dad, uh-huh. um, and waiting until near the last day, yeah, and then e- even more so. Um, you having the opportunity to look at some North Vietnamese films Mm -hmm. and it felt sort of taboo and there was a reluctance like that perhaps like to really be able to helm something, a project like diacritics or to do a a image text music poetry collection in two languages and in two countries, you, you would have to also make these, journeys into things that destabilize one's like, sense of selfhood or like be willing to look at like one's like fallibilities or one's limits yeah um, i mean yeah. could you could you talk about what the experience of like looking at those north vietnamese films were like and what you discovered in terms of yeah. uh different narrative gendered narratives that were happening yeah. around war um i guess in, in that particular case like it's hard to explain. I mean, I can be like, I was busy, um, and you know, um, but it probably it had a little bit to do with like you know my mother or just like that that kind of my own like family. You know, my mom's obviously very anti-communist, so if I mentioned the films to her, she would just write them off as like propaganda, um, you know. And yet they were being taught by this white university professor as you know the cinema of vietnam and he was doing what he felt like was a justice in like giving space for the north vietnamese voices and um and i remember watching that film it was called abandoned field and uh, i guess what what struck me was that there was like a I mean, I guess it comes comes back to that yin yang, like like the the central image that really stood out to me was this woman with like carrying a baby on her hip and a rifle like so she's like this woman warrior figure and then yet she's like this like nurturing mother like caretaker which goes back to like there in Vietnam there is like this this attachment or this nostalgia and this this reverence for like the feminine um in in these contradictory ways where like the warrior woman spirit is like lauded and then there's also just you know the woman is caretaker just the mother um and the rebel the trung sister yeah the trung sisters are like a they are a national legend and and that's um this story about the the women warriors um who stood up to the chinese invaders and it's really interesting because it's like um i think it was you know, the story goes that they, they fought the Chinese invaders and then they managed to fight them back. And there was like three years of independence. So it's actually like a really short period of time. Um, and then, you know, they were overcome again. And then rather than surrender, they like threw themselves in the river and, you know, drowned. Um, so like there is in that spirit, there's just this like, you know, I will, I'll, I'll destroy myself before you, you know, you can like, you know, that before I'll surrender. And that's like a very strong, like kind of just spirit of passion of like, um, that I feel like is, is, is in that, you know, in the culture. Um, but yeah, like, I, I think I, I just, I was looking at it from the perspective of cinema, 
So it's like the imagery, like you see this, this is how like Vietnam, this is how this North Vietnamese film like made an icon or made an image of like the war. And it was like a woman carrying a baby on her hip. And, and, and like, that's, it's really interesting. And then you look at like something like Platoon, um, you know, or the American war movies, which are obviously like this, it, like that, it just set up this juxtaposition of like, are these the two forces that yeah. are so at like war. man and man in the sky and a machine and yeah and then yeah there's there's the yeah in that Vietnamese film there's like the identification with nature and they're hiding in, under the water and um, so whether that's like a reflection of reality or not um, it's a reflection of how like mythologies it's a reflection of certain mythologies that have been presented. The reason I asked that question about like a self journey is because yeah. I think about you growing up in a mostly white rural Christian community and, and you, st- you still now live in a, in a overwhelmingly white, white city. <laughs> so 70, 75% white, yes. but nevertheless, you are sort of central and surrounded by a really vibrant, uh, community of artists of color here mm-hmm. and, and also have, have helped create one with Vietnamese women and now are helming diacritics, which yeah. is even a larger like network <laughs> of the Vietnamese diaspora. So it's like, it feels like maybe tracking the way your books have moved, um, that mm-hmm. there's like a process of decolonization of, of self. Like I think yeah. about you, you, your piece that you wrote about Iowa, Iowa pastoral, mm-hmm. and you said you're in your young, early twenties. So and you came and your interests were in Carver, Steinbeck, and yeah. Sam Shepard, so white writers, and you were listening to country music. And you went mm-hmm. to Iowa with this expectation of writing and being taught writing, being classless and yeah. and raceless, like you were going to go. And similarly, you have this interesting piece that's much more recent about Iceland, <laughs> where you ask, what would it be like, I wondered, to stand on a landmass that has not been subject to any major wars, that has no indigenous people who are unduly colonized, where no bombs have been dropped, no genocide conducted, where the average number of homicides committed per year is an inconceivably low single-digit number. I wanted to know if it would feel different for my body, in my body, to be in such a place because I'd only ever been in geographies rife with histories and identities derived out of a continuing relationship with violence, namely the violence of one power, one body or group of bodies dominating, attempting to erase others. And I I, I wondered partially like this belief or hope that Iowa would be sort of (laughs) utopic and, and maybe Iceland might also be if that, is, I wonder if that was a reiteration of like what you get from your parents. And then on the other side is this work of, yeah. of sort of complicating narratives and making them more, more um, polyvocal. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on it and maybe also just your, your experience of Iowa and Iceland versus the, the dream of, of Iowa and Iceland. Yeah. Um, I guess I think of those as two very different places. I guess there's like this, this idealization of like hoping that there's a place that, you know, that, that people can exist in, in harmony and not have these power struggles or these power dynamics. Um, and that's something that, you know, (laughs) I don't know if that's possible. Um, I guess I would say that the work that has come about, like just 
being amid like communities of color and working with like diacritics and um it's like all of that has happened without me really like consciously being aware of it or trying and I don't I don't have an explanation for why or why it's come about now um it's not all mapped out yeah yeah um except that like you know whether it's like the place I don't know if Portland has like necessitated it somehow um in being like the type of like you know white environment it is like oddly Portland is the place that I have come into contact with like a stronger you know community of like artists of color um and I don't that doesn't make any sense because I've like lived in New York and I've lived in San Francisco so maybe it was just I wasn't as conscious of it in those times but um but yeah I don't know if I'm answering your question um Well, you did have a realization, I think, in that piece about Iceland, that even coming to this place, you were seeing the way the artists in the artist residency who weren't, who were white, who were, who were white and who um, were able to revel in something about the beauty of it in a less complicated way than you. I mean, they weren't all white. I'll have to say that. Um, But, but yeah, I think that one of the things I wrestled with was that I was... I, I like like this identity that I was carrying with me that was wrestling with war and history and trauma was getting in the way of like, you know, I guess just being able to let that go and like enjoy like the the actual environment and just the the beauty of it. Um and I it's I guess I carry it with me and it was that was what I was like realizing that um I wasn't, you know, like, <laughs> like, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't able to just enjoy it as, as freely, but it was also a realization that like identity, um, can be attached to trauma or like we can get, we can get kind of attached to, to the things that are difficult that we've identified ourselves by. Um, and then at the same time, like be longing to be free of like that, those, that, those karmas or those burdens. Um, I don't know if this is too personal to ask, Mm -hmm. but I I did wonder, you know, you, you're a mother and what, what, and you've thought very deeply about your own biography and how it relates to collective memory and to trauma and, and also in an empathetic way, have looked hard at the choices that your parents have made, which you're not entirely happy with um, necessarily. But um, I know I I was curious what sort of considerations went into raising a a Vietnamese American. Yeah, he's my my son is mixed race. So he's half Vietnamese and half white. Um, And um, I'm I'm a I was a young mother. so it was, you know, I became a mother when I was 25. Um, and I, I, I would say, like, the thing that I've tried to give him that I didn't have was, like, a sense of the past or that it mattered, um, that the history of, like, being from Vietnam mattered. Um, and I think he has that. Like, he, you know, at the age of 16 or 17 probably knew more about, like, the Vietnam War or was kind of, you know, interested in it than I was at that age. So I hope that that matters. Um, And I did take him back to Vietnam with me when I went back in 2014. So I guess I wanted him to have those, like, just 
those moments. Like I, you know, he's, I've took him to meet my birth father. Like, so he met his grandfather and it's small. And I don't know what, I can't say that I know what it means to him. You know, Mm -hmm. we have a really good relationship and he cares about the world and he seems to have like more of a sense of where he came from as far as just what our roots are and largely due to having a mother who's like, you know, wrestling, like throughout his childhood, I've been wrestling with trying to write, you know, these books. Um, So, so it's, it's different in that, like my parents told me it didn't matter. Um, And then, and in the eighties when I was growing up, that's probably what a lot of Vietnamese parents were, were dealing with, like their own trauma made it difficult for them to, to be able to share those stories. Like, evenly with their children so it's like you know it's it's interesting to see how how deeply rooted that the hatred and the fear of the communists are like it's it's it really is a source of trauma in many people's families um so so yeah it that's that's the biggest difference Mm -hmm. i would say well before before we end i i do want to return to uh, the symbology in the book. I know we started with the hexagram, the wanderer, the lot of the wanderer being separation. But I think perhaps a more important image in the book, or at least as important an image, is is the triangle. Mm-hmm. And and we get, a f- at the beginning of the book, we get a triangle with a, a human figure in it. Mm-hmm. And then we get later a sea of triangles yeah. with these images and then later we get the context of what that person is in the triangle, um, what iconic photograph, though I wonder how iconic it is to yeah. everybody at this point or not. Um, and I was hoping maybe you could speak to, uh, well, speak to the photograph and what it means to you, but also speak to the, the triangle, because I feel like the triangle... Which which photograph are you? Oh, of to? the man leaping. Oh, that one. Okay, the, yes, yes. Of the uh-huh. pilot from the helicopter yeah. who's leaping okay. and is caught midair between the helicopter yeah. and the ocean. Um, which I believe he's, he's, if I understand correctly, it's he's delivering refugees to an aircraft carrier. Yeah, perhaps. it's a that that photograph in particular is of a South Vietnamese pilot. Um, helicopter pilot like jumping out of the helicopter and it's like April end of April 1975 and the helicopters were being used to ferry refugees or people leaving to the U.S. air carriers but there wasn't room for the helicopters so they're having to push them you know into the sea and that particular instance was like the helicopter had like delivered its passengers and then the helicopter pilot like flew the helicopter over the ocean and then just jumped out of it and then swam back to the carrier. So, um, oh, I assumed he was killing himself. Uh, no. Yeah. No, I think I mean, he survived. Yeah. yeah. Or, or at least, yeah. In that, like the stories that I, I had infused that photo oh, with a whole narrative. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm of the assumption that he swam back to, and, and there are like accounts of like the pilot jumping out and just, you know, swimming back to the, the air carrier. Um, but yeah, like I, I, for me, it's just this image that, you know, encapsulates the Vietnamese identity kind of in free fall, like we're just everything's being abandoned. Um, and also maybe, I don't know if this is intentional, but it speaks back to this tension between 
that North Vietnamese film of mm-hmm. like the ocean and nature and then the machine yeah. in the sky. And yeah. that person is, is literally yeah. the triangulated <laughs> uh-huh. being between the two. I mean, that's uh, like, I, yeah, I'm happy to like let that sit. <laughs> like that is just a great juxtaposition of the elements at play. Yeah. Um, the triangles are um, like, I guess the simplest way I can put them, like just what, drew me to them instinctually is like I I'm interested in geometry and I'm interested in shapes and just the the energy of shapes and the triangle and especially when you turn it upside down is a very destabilizing and very dynamic shape so I had this sense of like you know it's both pulling things down it might be pulling something down from like the sky or from wherever else and that was like a lot of my play with it on the images was like Hmm. um you know what like just where that energy is happening um and and i guess i thought of like the upside down ones as being like more destabilizing yeah. or more like something's like that's so interesting down. like when we were talking before at the beginning about the difference between taking fragments to build a hole or breaking a hole yeah. to create fragments and you're talking about the triangle as destabilizing and all along i'm thinking of them as uh instead of having to choose between one or one thing or the yeah. other the triangulation is like a way to choose both and neither the way you it's talked true. about with hybridity. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was thinking about it as, as, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. The third way, I guess. <laughs> yeah. would, would you mind reading? Um, sure. I, I printed out a, a, I think this is from your memoir, but this is, okay. this is about that photograph, this part in bold. And so perhaps the real question I want to ask on this day that I would want to ask my fellow inheritors of this free-fall moment in history, which can be read as the free-fall into or out of an identity, as well the free-fall of either the machine or the man, maybe. How will you read it? Which element, helicopter or man, will you grieve for more? Or will you marvel at more, and why? Which one will you instinctively, inside, at the first moment of observation, root for, worry for, and picture the next movements, the landing of? Will your imagination follow the helicopter as it sinks to its watery grave? Or will your imagination follow the Vietnamese man as he hits the water and holds his breath and then starts kicking and pulling to get to the next place he needs to get to, to be free and keep living? And how, you, how will you read it onward in the next frame and the next one? And in the longer series of pictures yet to unfold beyond this one. I love that as a sort of Rorschach, Rorschach test. Is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of goes back to like, yeah, are we going to dwell on like, yeah, the American machinery or on the yeah. the human beings? Well, can you speak since we, we touched on the ocean and I feel like we haven't talked about the importance of the ocean or the yeah. sea. It's part of your 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 Twitter <laughs> handle very, here in the yeah. sea, and then the, the book opens with a line which I w- I want to hear about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will always be someone from somewhere else, is a design flaw of water, and then it ends. The book ends with uh, a map of images called Index for Seeing on Two Shores, which has <laughs> these ocean centered maps. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I I feel like there's 
there's some wisdom here. Well, the ocean's a big theme, I felt like, for Vietnamese people and obviously just like this, this for displaced people who have crossed seas and who have been in boats, which is still going on. Um, So, so much happens having to cross that distance. Um, The other interesting part about, like, the Vietnamese language is the word nook, um, means both water and nation or country. Um, So it's like something that is a theme that's like pretty commonly played with. And um, I mean, for myself, I guess it's, you know, there's those metaphors or those, those, those themes. And then just, uh, I am like a very water, uh, like drawn person. And um, maybe the sea just has to do with like the unconsciousness and the emotions Mm. um, also. Yeah, I was thinking also like, when we are, you're talking about the definition of country and your your body has to be separate mm-hmm. from and or like it's it's something against a, a country that that yeah. we normally would think of the two countries on either side as being or we normally think of a country as being the whole and yeah. if you with these ocean centered m- maps it feels like the, the countries on either side are the fragments yeah. and the ocean is the whole I like that. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's a focus on the middle space or the process in between. Yeah. Um, I guess I think of like hybridity and just what what I'm particularly inclined to is like, kind of contemplating that middle space and transitions and, um, yeah, the seams between places. Like, uh, I'm probably more aware, more identified with that in between space. Um, than I am with like belonging to one place or another. Yeah. So maybe we can end with uh, a segment near the end of the collection. Okay. Great. Um, so this poem is called Eleven Eight Sixteen, which is a date. Um, and are you ready to get a little more comfortable with your uncomfort? I lay next to you, and in my body it will always be It will always hit, different than in or for yours. In this world, I enact separation for the sake of spelling accurately, the exposure, the distance, unsung textures between your skin and mine. How to cultivate need not, need not run, need not need, need not fear, because I have felt alienated on most days, And so what? Stepping onto a stage is always an act of self-isolation. Violation, inviolate or inviolable. We self, we ensoul, we insulate. Despite introversion, despite inversion, despite our art needs to count even more now. Because momentarily I had forgot White is a color of mourning in the culture of my birth. Black, the one for anniversaries and birthdays. You see how easily we shift our grief into complementary colors. Consciousness is not the same as instinct or emotion, heart, maybe, which you place conveniently low in the body, in that space you frequently turn back to. White boys will always take it upon themselves to remove orange cones on their own impetus. Thinking it all right to intimidate children 
into riding roller coasters when they don't really want to. I've always hated that. Body suggestions of perils to enjoy. Levity at the cost of empathy. If you want anything from the body, if you fear anything of the body, then look first. See how action does not occur before the unconsciousness of action. What are you ruled by? Why do you still wear it? I gleaned whiteness in a snow globe, in the dressed-up corpses of trees spied through Christmas night windows, in a land where snow is ecologically impossible, especially in April. They played the song about white dreaming to let the non-people know it was time to go. And in response, we were the ones who sought to die in our most ridiculous naive dreams, die intelligently enough to be permitted to crawl inside. But our innocent flesh of living always gets in the way. Coming from so much death, how could we not know we are alive? Okay. Thank you so much for being on Between the Covers. Thank you. Now. Thank you for having me. We're talking today to Dow Strom about her latest poetry collection from Ajar Press. You will always be someone from somewhere else. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer powered, non commercial, listener sponsored, full strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Dow Strom's work can be found at dowstrom.com, diacritics.org, and dcanon, de canon.com. Her memoir, We Were Meant to Be Gentle People, and her poetry collection, You Will Always Be From Somewhere Else, can be found at Small Press Distribution at spdbooks.org. And You Will Always Be From Somewhere Else can also be acquired directly from Ajar at ajarpress.com. Dowstrom will also be adding a live in-studio performance of her song Cataclysm to the bonus archive, and I'm uploading a conversation with translator Lee Thuy Nguyen about the experience of creating and working with the Vietnamese portion of the book. This joins readings by Carmen Maria Machado, Vicky Nao, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. 